Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a rough nag. Free the Black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for Free the Black Panthers. It's not the Black Police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black gone, black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth a crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me, you can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free, okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the Black Police, Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles, but we still here in the bill here. Up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, cause that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock locked up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. The most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police department to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
You're listening to New Black Panther Party nightly broadcast, coming to you live, actually coming to you with pre-recorded information, but this uh, opening statement is live. We want to thank everyone for continuing to support our nightly broadcast as we make sure to bring you uh, all things reparations, all things reparations. Uh, we have been making this nightly broadcast a platform for covering many of the different forums that have previously taken place as it relates to reparations, giving our people all of the ammunition we need in our arguments for reparations. We have heard many of the so-called arguments against reparations, which have been very watered down, very, uh, you know, really non-relevant reasons not to uh, present reparations, not for us to move forward with reparations. And in, in other words, the movement for reparations is very much strong. We need to expand it, no doubt. We need to get more people involved. Uh, with that being said, the New Black Panther Party is at the forefront of one of the leading organizers for the cause of reparations. We want you to uh, support our, pro, our, bar, our broadcast as well as our organization and program by going to www.nbpp.org and clicking that donate button to help financially support our operations and our platforms and programs. So without further ado, we will continue with information on reparations. Black Power. I thank the gentleman. Uh, it is clear that there is a new day. has this dress. No. Neither. I feel like Harry Potter. Too librarian. Too Bono? No. 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 Big no. Yes. I look a little bit like a bumblebee. How long you been in these parts? Bah. If sadness had a color. I bought this? Your Honor, I object. Hmm? No. This is so much like my dad. That is the ticket.
Support for KQED Live comes from Berkeley Rep. Support for KQED comes from the Asian Art Museum. Visitors can step into an experience like no other at Team Lab Continuity and become part of a wondrous ecosystem of lush natural imagery that dynamically evolves around them. For more information and ticket reservations, visit AsianArt.org. Disproportionate impact of more COVID. Than half of black business owners. Somehow we always find a way Welcome to rise. To the blueprint builders. To the backbones of every block. For the curators of the culture. And for generations to follow. You might fall, but never fail. Keep rising. Keep rising. Keep rising. Apply for a business, marketing, and tech makeovers on us. So glad I'm flying out of Oakland today. Let's count the reasons why. For one, flying locally reduces my carbon footprint. Plus, my airport supports over 17,000 jobs in the East Bay. And it makes sense. The more I fly from OAK, the more flights airlines will add out of OAK. All good. No matter where you live in the Bay Area, there are many great reasons to pick OAK and fly the East Bay way. What you do with that extra hour is up to you. Hi, everyone. My name is Michael Issop. I'm president and CEO of KQED. And welcome to KQED Live here in the space we call the Commons, nested in our headquarters in San Francisco's Mission District. Now, KQD Live, as you know, because you're here, is our new live event series, in person and virtual. But KQD Live is more than just an event series. These are experiences. Experiences meant to bring our journalism, our journalists, our programming to life, to spark bold civic dialogue, as well as to amplify our cultural vitality. Now, KQD's mission, our purpose, is to serve the Bay Area, serve the Bay Area 
with trusted journalism and quality programming. Journalism and programming that informs, inspires, and involves. Informs based on facts, accuracy, and truth. Inspires with stories about human experiences. Stories that we hope move you intellectually and emotionally. And inspires or involves by bringing people together like this evening so we can come together and participate as active and responsible citizens. Now, we believe we're an essential service, but the most important thing I can say this evening is thank you, because just as you depend on us, we absolutely rely on you. So thank you for however you support KQED, attending events like these, watching, listening, going to our website, downloading our app, and especially if you are a member. You have made, and I say this humbly, you've made KQD one of the most watched, most listened to public media organizations in the country. We are the number one news and information radio station in the Bay Area. And by the way, out of all news and information stations in the country, we're in the top five. And in all, about one in two Bay Area adults use at least one KQED service a week, and we have more than 257,000 members. So thank you for your support. And speaking of support, I want to acknowledge and thank our partners, our sponsors for KQD Live. You saw their messages, Asian Art Museum, Berkeley Rep, Comcast Business, and Oakland International Airport. Now, this evening, I guarantee you, you will be informed. And my hope is that you will be inspired, inspired to be involved in the conversation and perhaps carry it forward past this evening. As you know, we're going to explore the case for reparations for black people in California. This is part of an ongoing reporting initiative called Reparations in California. And currently there's a state task force that is exploring the issues and they're expected to release a proposal to address the legacies of slavery as well as systemic racism. You are in great hands this evening, leading our panel discussion. Our panelists are top-notch. Leading the discussion is Otis Taylor, Jr. He is our senior editor of Race and Equity. Now, Otis's role at KQED is critical because he works with our journalists as well as our editors to ensure that our coverage or storytelling are culturally competent and how we reflect our diverse communities, how we serve our diverse communities. Otis is a seasoned journalist, having worked at San Francisco Chronicle, Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He has deep experience in housing, inequality, policing, and race. He is passionate, committed, and respected. So please join me in welcoming our senior editor of Race and Equity, Otis Taylor, Jr. Good evening. Welcome to our studio audience and welcome to our viewers at home. I want to thank you for joining us. I'd like to set a baseline for tonight's conversation. I shouldn't have to, but let me give you a fair warning. 
this is a space for real talk. It's a space for real talk that's based in fact. There's no dancing, no hedging, no deflecting. In this space, for the next hour, we're going to confront issues. Racial inequality and wealth disparity in California are inextricably linked to the state's entry to the union. White supremacy was the catalyst for the slaughter, displacement, and imprisonment of indigenous people. White supremacy was the catalyst for the state's refusal to recognize black people as people. Some 170 years since statehood, white supremacy continues to shine bright in the Golden State. Now, before I introduce tonight's panelists, allow me to give you a brief factual history lesson. Gold was discovered in 1848, two years before California was recognized as a slave-free state. Speculators and opportunists, opportunists like uh, Peter Burnett, California's first governor, an enslaver and repugnant racist from Tennessee flooded the state. Burnett tried unsuccessfully to exclude black people from California. But he encouraged the displacement and slaughter of indigenous people. It was an extermination. He also served on the state Supreme Court and was adamant about excluding Chinese people from California. Sidebar, according to a 2020 census, this state is majority people of color. And the margin is getting larger. But all the governors in this state have been white men. Why is that? California's constitution ratified in 1848 said this, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude unless for the punishment of crimes, shall ever be tolerated in this state. Make no mistake, since this state's inception, laws have been enacted to purposely disenfranchise non-white people. At the state's inaugural Constitution Convention, the great O.M. Wozencraft, a delegate from Stockton, had this to say while advocating to exclude black people from entering a supposedly free state. He said, it would appear that the all-wise creator has created the Negro to serve the white race. We see evidence of this wherever they are brought in contact. We see the instinctive feeling of the Negro is obedience to the white man. And in all instances, he obeys him and is ruled by him. Do you think an expectation of docility remains? Just last week, I edited a story by my colleague, Suki Lewis, who, drawing from records released because of an expanded police transparency law, a law police unions fought, she reported on an on-duty on police officer who casually used 
the N-word in front of his supervisor, in front of a police trainee, in front of someone running for city council. Here's what he said. When I get closer to retirement and someone says something about the cops shooting black people, I'm going to say I've never shot an N-word. Hard R. In 1850, the federal government passed the Fugitive Slave Act, which essentially entitled white people the right to re-enslave people who escaped captivity and settled in free states, like California. In 1852, California said, hold my beer, and passed its own Fugitive Slave Act, which legalized the arrest and removal of black people, whether they were the property of a white man or not. Think about it. That's the very definition of state-sanctioned violence. And it continues today with police killings. According to the Washington Post, Black Americans are twice, twice, they are killed at twice the rate of white Americans. This is but one reason why California's Reparation Task Force, the first statewide body to study reparations, is so important. The road to racial equity in this country starts in California. At KQED, we're devoting resources to covering the task force, because it's our belief that our shared history, the stories that bind us all together, must actually reflect the reality of that shared history. In her riveting introduction to our FAQ, which you can find at kqed.org slash reparations, my colleague Lakshmi Sarah wrote, our coverage of the Reparations Task Force is for anyone who wonders about the big questions like, why is there a disproportionate number of unhoused black people? Why are the incarceration rates highest for black people? Why do black communities lack what's easily accessible in white communities? You know, like grocery stores, libraries, restaurants, Shit, banks? Basic investments are missing in black communities. Many of those communities were formed because of discriminatory redlining policies. Why is it that black people are displaced? And when the investment comes, why is it that black people are displaced? We can't appropriately respond to the issues plaguing the Bay Area, gun violence, property theft, homelessness, until we objectively address our shared history. And let me be clear, more poorly trained and heavily armed policemen isn't a solution. I'd like to shout out my colleagues who were instrumental in crafting the tone of the coverage. You can read at kqed.org slash reparations. The aforementioned Lakshmi Sarah, Annalise Finney, who deftly reported on Japanese re reparations like a professional, Beth LaBerge, who will be providing visual documentation of our work. Now, let me introduce you to tonight's panelists, some of the smartest people I know.
First is Sarah Truhath. She's the Vice President of Research at PolicyLink, leading the organization's work to produce original research as well as data and policy tools, such as the National Equity Atlas and the Bay Area Equity Atlas, that support grassroots partners, boost local campaigns, and advance transformative policy wins nationally. Yo, Sarah. Sarah. <laughs> uh, next is Nikki Jones. She's a professor and H. Michael and Jean Williams Department Chair of African American Studies uh, at UC Berkeley. Jones earned her PhD in criminology and sociology from the University of Pennsylvania and is considered a leading expert on race and criminal legal system, policing and violence. Jones is at work on a new book, Brutal and Routine, which draws on 20 years of research to crystallize and provide a necessary understanding of the violence of policing with a reasoned argument for abolition. It will be published by W.W. Norton Press. Nikki, what's up? Y'all, she dropped a, a velvet jacket on us today. <laughs> so fly. Thank you. Um, last is one of my favorite columnists, Erica Smith. She writes for the Los Angeles Times, and her coverage area is diversity of people and places across California. She joined the Times in 2018 as an assistant editor and helped expand coverage of the state's housing and homelessness crisis. She previously worked for the Sacramento Bee, where she was a columnist and editorial board member, covering housing, homelessness, and social justice issues. Before the Bee, Smith wrote for the Indianapolis Star and Akron Beacon Journal. She is a recipient of the Sigma Delta Chi Award for Column Writing and a graduate of Ohio University. Erica, what's up? I was going to say something about the glass office, but I, I rejected that. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, we're here to talk about California's nine-member reparations task force. And it was formed to study reparations for African Americans and to recommend appropriate ways to educate the California public of the task force findings and to recommend appropriate remedies in consideration of the task force findings. It's important that we are talking about reparations now. Less than two years since the world watched a police officer kneel on a black man's neck for nine minutes while ignoring his pleas for help. But it's also been 31 years since the first video of state-sanctioned violence, a brutal beating by Los Angeles police officers went viral. And if you don't know those names, that's part of why we're here. What are we talking about when we're discussing reparations? Now, I'd like to hear from each of you, but Nikki, why don't you start? 
when we hear the word reparations and when we think about this task force, what are we really talking about? Yeah, well, thank you uh, first for having me, and it's a real honor to, to be on the stage with all of you and to see all of you folks uh, in the audience and those who are joining us uh, online. Uh, you know, when thinking about this question, you know, I thought to myself, there's never been a moment uh, in my life where black people have not been talking about reparations, <laughs> right? Uh, and I think that's probably true for a lot of black people. And so what are the, you know, the question is, you know, what does it mean in, in this iteration of our conversation about reparations, right? And, and, and part of the reason we're having this conversation is we can think back to the work of, of Ta-Nehisi Coates and his, his article uh, making a case for reparations, and what he's writing about there is this kind of need for a spiritual awakening, right? A kind of rising of the consciousness of Americans uh, to the, the the original sin and the violence and the state violence that's been done uh, as a consequence of it, and providing really concrete examples of the harm that was done, uh, so that we can imagine what the the, the reparation, what the the redress would be. And that was a much different moment, right? We had our first black president. It was before the rise of, of Black Lives Matter, which is uh, and the movement for black lives and the uprisings against systemic racism and police violence uh, that have gotten us to the moment that, that we're in now. Um, and, and, and I'm skipping over that, that presidency that we had as well, but was very consequential <laughs> for, right, uh, the, fact. the fact, you know, for, for how we're thinking about all of this now. Uh, and so I think what we have today as a part, as a as a as a function of this conversation, is in some ways the most sophisticated um, uh, conversation around what reparations can be. Mm. And so we think of, um, for example, the work of Sandy Darity and thinking about reparations as the acknowledgement of a harm, a system of redress, and then some closure. Uh, you could think about the different layers. Of, of, of institutions, state in, uh, institutions, uh, local institutions, the federal government, private institutions that would all be a part of, of, of the response. And the real challenge is going to be, well, how do we do this thing? Yeah. Right? Uh, but when I think about that question for so long, that question was the ending point. Right. Well, we can't do that. And this is a conversation I've had with my students in, in class for the, as long as I've been teaching. Right? And you hear that, but we can't do that. How are we going to get money to everybody and to all these, all these people? Right? Well, now we know that we can get money to people really quickly yes. Right? Yes, as a consequence of, of this, this great crisis. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so now I see this as a, as a starting point, a question as questions that used to shut down the conversation are now starting points. And so what is reparations? It's both an opportunity mm -hmm. right, to enter into this, this conversation, and I think it has to be a conversation, and that is the utility of any task force because it forces – those conversations, and it provides the, the documentation of the conversation so that, that all of that is entered into the historical record. Mm -hmm. And so whether or not it happens now in this moment, it is a new starting point. Okay. Erica. You know, it's interesting. I've been thinking about this question just as a journalist and covering some of these issues. And, and to Nikki's point, I do think a lot of this has been, you know, people have been talking about this forever, 40 acres and a mule, whatever right. we should get back, you know. But I think until fairly recently among the general public, it's been in kind of thought of as almost like a fantasy, like if we could do this or if we could do that. Um, and I think that when it became more real, and I would say, you know, obviously post-Trump, you know, post-George Floyd, um, and people started to think about this realistically, I think, you know, 
people didn't really know what to make of it. Is it a cash payment along the lines of what we saw with the stimulus checks? Is it, you know, literally land like 40 acres and a mule? Yeah. Is it, you know, is it uh, more of a policy thing? And I think that, you know, as these conversations have started to happen and continue to happen over the last, in earnest, over the last two to three years, I think the conversation has become more sophisticated. And I would say even my thinking about it has become, just from the first column I wrote about it to, to now, what that actually could look like. And I think, well, maybe where people did think it was just strictly cash payments, I think people's imaginations about what reparations could be um, has really changed. And I think some of that, you know, came about as... Um, Result of what happened in L.A. County, where there was a piece of property, beachfront property, that was mm -hmm. taken by eminent domain by the city of Manhattan Beach uh, a century or so ago or more, and was given back uh, to, by the state to the family. And that was such a big defining, to me in my brain, you know, of what reparations could be. It's not just, mm -hmm. you know, give you a check, but, you know, what is this idea of generational wealth, um, you know, land, what are we actually missing? And I think that that mm. concept for me and I think for a lot of people has changed into what is possible. And I, I think it's still kind of a very undefined thing for a lot of people, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's just kind of this question is ongoing. Mm -hmm. Sarah, uh, from a policy perspective, y'all, Sarah has put me up on so much data. <laughs> <laughs> from a policy perspective, what does it mean to you? I mean, I think that it is what was already said in terms of a formal, a formal process of acknowledging the harm and apologizing, right? That has to happen. You have to have a reckoning, which the task force is doing in terms of what is the history, what have we done in California. You have to have redress that is compensation, right? And then you have to have some form of um, reconciliation or healing, right? The coming together closure that you mentioned. Um, so all of those pieces, I think the, po the policy piece is what is the set of policies that could start to address the disparities that we see among black Californians. And that I think is going to be incredibly generative from this task force to look mm. at the harms and then what is the redress or policy to um, begin to repair those harms. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I would say when I agree with the uh, increased energy around reparations, mm -hmm. coming to it from an equity perspective at PolicyLink, our focus is racial equity. We haven't had a reparations agenda. Mm -hmm. We are talking about it now. We are hosting an organization Liberation Ventures, which is working on reparations, um, but it is relatively new to us, but it's an interesting intersection of how the equity movement yes. and this conversation around reparations, which is really acknowledging the need to compensate for past harm, are starting to come together. So I think that's really exciting. I, I do too, and I, I feel um, that this task force, you know, I, I've said it's, this is our Kerner Commission. And if you aren't familiar with the Kerner Commission, um, here's a brief synopsis. Uh, 55 years ago, in the wake of nationwide protests, very much like what we saw in 2020, um, this commission was appointed to investigate the racial uprisings that swept the country. Like, why is this happening? Um, this, the commission found um, that state and federal government housing, education, and social policies, police brutality, and the lack of opportunity among many, many 
other issues responsible for the racial unrest. The commission concluded, white institutions created it, white institutions maintain it, and white society condones it. Yet we seem to be stuck in the same place. Erica, do you think this task force could provide a roadmap to honest conversation about race and racial inequities in this country? Well, the optimist in me thinks yes, would like to think yes. Um, I, I think it's possible. I mean, from watching a lot of the task force meetings that have been going on for several months now, I think that they are really, you know, scraping all of the things that are wrong. I mean, from housing and gentrification to um, wealth generation, to racial wealth gap to, I mean, you name it, 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 the various different reasons why why black Americans are so far behind other races and, and the reasons why, historical reasons why. I think the thing that worries me a bit is that, you know, a lot of these conversations seem to be kind of just the people who are paying attention are the people who already kind of know. They're the people who are the academics, they're the journalists, they're the people who already have this interest in it, who already understand in some ways, you know, systemic racism. They understand the historical reasons behind, you know, why we are the way we are. But I think to get that honest conversation to the general public, particularly in California, you're going to have to engage a far broader audience. And I worry that that has not happened yet. I think in the last few meetings that have happened, um, you know, what California is doing with the task force is very much groundbreaking and, and no other state is doing this. And it's starting to get more national attention, not just from, you know, national press, but actual people who are calling in to give public comment mm-hmm. um, is evidenced by some of the comments this morning on the task force. But I do, I do worry that, you know, the, the people who really need to hear and understand these, these conversations. So by the time this gets to the legislature and they talk about actual legislative remedies, policy remedies, that they will understand why they're happening the way they're happening. And I, I do fear that those conversations aren't getting out into the broader public, and so I worry about that. Right, and, and Nikki, we, you know, many conversations. Um, like how, how did you know talking to your students about you know yes this can happen or this can be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and and pushing back on you know that it can't happen, but these conversations that Erica's talking about, how do we, I mean, even begin to have those conversations with people in places in California that, you know, don't like people of color, that are racist. How do we even, even broach yeah, that? Yeah, I think, you know, it's certainly people who, who may be stone-cold racist. Um, but what I think, you know, Erica's comment brings up as well in your question is that there's also just a general ignorance mm. about the history. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I mean that in a not knowing, yes. right? And so I have the, what I think are the best students out there. I love my students. Uh, and some of them come from what people would describe as the best high schools, and I'm in air quotes, in, in the country, the best training. And they get to my classroom, and they know virtually nothing about black history. And that's one of the reasons they're in my classroom, because they want to know. Okay. Right? And so they understand that they've moved through this whole educational system, right, on track to get to an institution of higher education to Berkeley, and they've been able to do that without having to know that history, mm. right? And so that's a, a comment on our educational system, whether or not we are preparing people yep. to participate in the kinds of conversations, to be the kinds of, of voters that they need to be, right, in order to move this, this forward. But I do think that you have to first address that, that ignorance and step into it 
uh, and understand that it's it's people who are who are you know both willfully and 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 you know um, it's just kind of socialized into that right. right and get them into the conversation mm-hmm. uh, and that having these kinds of task forces provides the context for that right provides an opportunity for that but we are talking about a a system um, you know that is is you know what is wrong with our education mm-hmm. right that gets us to this point where so many folks know so little about something so important. Right. And, and, you know, you and Erica both mentioned that, you know, reparations is nothing new, right? We had a congressman, John Conyers, the late John Conyers of Michigan, who introduced H.R. 40, a bill to study reparations on a national level every year for almost 30 years. The name of the bill is a nod to Special Field Order Number 15, an 1865 decree that authorized the distribution of Confederate land in the South to emancipated people. But after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, uh, President Andrew Johnson, he assumed the presidency. Um, This man was an enslaver. Twelve of the first 18 presidents of this country were enslavers. And he reversed that order. And now there's a disagreement among academics and advocates for reparations about where the focus should be, local, state, or federal. Now, Sarah, that's something that we have talked at length about. Um, How do you think California's effort plays into the national push for reparations? Yeah, um, it's definitely a big subject of debate amongst many of my friends. and others out there in the world. But um, so here's how I think about it. I think first, the federal government of the United States has to commit to reparations mm. for slavery. Mm-hmm. It, that has to happen. It is so long overdue. Black Americans are the only group that has experienced state, state-sanctioned discrimination, but not um, legal discrimination and not received um, uh, reparations. Mm-hmm. So that must happen. Um, there is no substitute for that mm-hmm. because if you think about it, what will happen in the South, right? So, it, it, you know, there, there's nothing that can happen at that scale that is not at the federal level right. because California is having this task force, right? And New York is talking about having a task force, but is this conversation happening in Mississippi and Alabama and where do most of black Americans live in the South, right? Mm-hmm. So without a federal policy, it will be um, exclusive, right? It won't reach people. Um, but third, I do think that the local and state uh, uh, reparations conversations are really generative and important. I think that in the United States, a lot of policy, especially big policy like this, things that we don't understand exactly how to do, there, is, there isn't a roadmap map yet. It can start at the local level and doing pilots to learn, you know, what are the remedies? What does it look like in different mm-hmm. places, right? Because the local conversations are about what were the specific harms in Evanston, Illinois? What were the specific harms in Asheville, right? right. Um, and so we're going to learn a lot from local models and discussions around mm-hmm. what does an equitable process look like? Um, what are the list of remedies? Um, how do we implement this in ways that are equitable and 
And so I think we can learn a lot at the local level, but it, it really isn't a substitute for the federal reparations. So okay. can I just say one thing, um, you know, because the, the, the 40 acres piece gets us to, to, to be thinking about land. And one of the things that we have to acknowledge is that we are on land that was, was stolen, right, and that the founders of, of the state, mm-hmm. you know, the land didn't belong to them. And, and, and indigenous uh, people here moved through waves of colonization and extermination, mm-hmm. as you said, at the top. Uh, and so I think that you know, what I see people grappling with in a really serious way and thinking about you know, what that compensation is and the role that land plays when we understand the nation itself is built on a system of, of settler colonialism and, and systemic genocide right. alongside slavery. Right? And so reparations is a, is a model for, for some compensation and redress uh, and yet, it exists along alongside these, the, you know, these these other, um, you know, atrocities in our history that we have to grapple with as well. Right. Um, and when we're talking about this model, Sarah, and you know, the, the people have experienced or their ancestors have experienced this atrocity, we got to answer the question of who is eligible. Oh yeah. And this week, the task force, the last two meetings, they were trying to tackle that that question, Erica. Yeah, it's it's honestly the most, I mean, one of the more fascinating parts of this conversation for me to, to watch as a task force today, um, there was the question of, you know, who's actually eligible for reparations? That's assuming, again, uh-huh. that all of these other uh, process, you know, things passed the legislature, there's money improved, you know, X, Y, and Z. But, you know, the question is, is it about lineage? Like, who can actually prove that they were right. descendants of slaves, mm-hmm. um, which is the most um, legally sound way to make it through, muster of the, through the courts? And then there's the question of whether it's, you know, by general race and by harm. Um, so if you, you know, is it a question of you can prove that your ancestors were here and enslaved? Uh, or did you move over, did your family come later and just, you know, were they, you know, redlined out of housing? Were they right. other things that happened? And, you know, it's a real question. And I, I think about that for myself. I mean, like, you know, my, my great-grandmother best I can tell, I <laughs> grew up in New Orleans, and I've tried to track her history down. And, you know, New Orleans is one of the cities that has, like, some of the oldest records going back. I can't even find, you know, records of that. And I think about the number of people in this country who are, are black, um, who don't know their ancestors, who don't, who are maybe in the foster system, who all these other things that, if all things were perfect, they could find out, you know, that they were and be eligible. Or the people um, who how many people are going to submit their DNA for genealogy testing and who's going to pay for that genealogy testing? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many questions about this. Um, And, you know, personally, I worry about this, and this came up during the task force meeting today, was this idea of, like, are we going to do a new litmus test for who's black? Like, who's black yes. enough? Are you, are you really black or are you really black? Mm-hmm. And, and how does, is it creating this kind of tiered system? And so I think in this quest for reparations, I think it's going to surface a lot of things within our community that maybe wouldn't necessarily be public, maybe shouldn't be public. But, <laughs> but it's going to show some stuff, that, some ugliness within our own community, mm-hmm. and it's some stuff that we have yet to reckon with. Um, and um, mm-hmm. I don't know if we're really prepared for that, to be honest with you. Um, but it is a question that's going to have to be answered as we move forward in this reparations discussion, and I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious about within our community, how that's going to play out when we get into it, when we have people talking, you know, testifying and, you know, determining what is black, who is black. Yeah. I mean, right now, I mean, 
Kamala Harris and Barack Obama wouldn't count. Yeah. You know, under the lineage, you know, uh, formula. I mean, I don't know if that's fair or not fair, but I, it's, <laughs> it's, it brings to light some interesting questions. Mm-hmm. I think I think both of them are, are set. Good point. Good point. They're good. But you know, this this makes me think that, like, you know, so so we we can have a system of reparations that responds to the direct harm that that was done historically. And we also have to account for the active ways in which institutions mm. draw on the logics that allowed for that violence at that time mm. in, in recent history. So, you know, and that's one of the, the challenges of the end of slavery, the logics that justified slavery remain, right? Uh, and then they, they justify patterns of, of racial exclusion throughout history and racial violence, including state violence. And so part of it is, is you know, who is, is eligible uh, but then who is responsible for the violence being done and what, how do we know? And there, there, it, there are some records, very clear records, yeah. right, of, of towns being devastated, mm-hmm. right, of people being lynched. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some very clear records of that. And we have records of harm done in the present moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so thinking about the institutions doing that harm and how are they held accountable for that. Right. And I want to talk about harm now. Um, Season two of uh, Sold Out, that's our housing podcast, um, it just dropped. And this season looks at evictions in the Bay Area, where despite local and state moratoriums, people were still being evicted. Uh, I, I think you can guess who was being evicted most. Uh, the city with the highest rate was Antioch, which is 54% um, black and brown according to census data, um, black people are disproportionately renters in this state. And it's black people, particularly black women, who are more likely to be evicted than white renters. Sarah, you shared with me some startling data that, um, that I'd like to share with the audience. Um, it, according to 2019 data, 35% of black Californians our homeowners. And that's a decline from 39% in 2000. Um, black people have the lowest homeownership rate across all racial and ethnic groups in the state. Comparatively, white home- homeownership in 2019 was 63%, a decrease of two percentage points over um, two decades. How much trouble are we in, Sarah? Um, people can't afford to live here in the Bay Area and California, and it's disproportionately impacting black women. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Black women with children, especially, right, Um, in terms of who's most likely to be evicted. Yeah, it is. I think housing is a central point of focus for this conversation around reparations and equity more broadly, Mm -hmm. and especially in California, because we have such high housing costs Mm -hmm. and the trends, like you said, um, declining homeownership rates for Black American, Black Californians. Sorry, um, and housing is such a central platform for your health, your well-being, your economic opportunities, mm-hmm. um, wealth. You know, for Black people in general, not just in California, uh, wealth is more likely to be held in your house. But yet, the foreclosure crisis really started yes. to decimate that. Right, so. That's the situation we're in, and so the rentership rates, right? Um, 
so we know that most black Californians are renters. So the renter agenda is really, really critical to get right in terms of having, um, you know, changing these statistics because the uh, black Californians also pay the most unaffordable rent. Mm. So they're the most rent burdened. And we did this analysis and we looked at, okay, so if you didn't have rent burden, rent burden means you pay more than 30% of your income Mm -hmm. on housing. If you took that away for black Californians, they would have $7,000 per year more. Mm -hmm. I mean, this huge increase in disposable income to spend on other family needs, right? Education, transportation, childcare. So it is a huge issue to tackle. It's really important right now. The the sold out podcast you're referencing, you know, we are in the middle of trying to get renters uh, back rent. Right, seven hundred thousand people in this state. Yeah. So it's and it's of course it's disproportionately black renters, um, not exclusively, but disproportionately. And so people are right now. We're looking at the data right now from the state program. It'll come out next week, and people are waiting. You know, people are waiting in that pipeline to get assistance mm-hmm. um, for uh, an average of 130 days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so it's really critical and it's urgent right now. So part of the long-term reparations agenda for sure, and and so urgent right now. Mm-hmm. You know, Erica. And I'm just wondering if people see this because in 2020, voters resoundingly rejected affirmative action. Um, when the task force recommends re- reparations next summer, which in whatever form, um, will the response by our elected officials and the electorate be a test for liberalism in California? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not a <laughs> 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 Well, you know, I'm not originally from California, but my impression since living here is people are liberal until it's inconvenient. Mm. And I feel like that Mm. is kind of part of what is behind the vote of affirmative action. And I think that, you know, in 2020, you know, coming out of the Trump years, I think there was this kind of righteous, you know, liberalism in California. Like, we are not, well, in liberal California anyway, but we are not, you know, right wing. We are not Trump supporters. We are, you know, we stand for science and for equity and for, you know, you name it. And I think that, you know, Americans and Californians have short attention spans. And I think that, Mm. I think we've seen that. And, you know, the moment, you know, as we started to, I guess, in theory, come out of the pandemic, um, when, you know, the social costs of the pandemic started to become clear, right. um, all of the people who had were on the, who were housing insecure, who had lost their housing, who had become homeless, who had lost their jobs, who um, had their wages cut, whose, you know, kids were out of school for longer than they anticipated, whose families were, you know, beset by illness and death and mm. all of these social ills that come along with that. And crimes died, started to spike you know, in Oakland and parts of South LA um, and all of our urban communities, you know, people who were, you know, frankly, white people in parts of the wealthier parts of our communities who were, you know, six months ago, all for equity and doing right. all these things are suddenly like, oh my God, we need to put more police on the streets. Oh my God, we need, you know, and that's what you see in the polls right now. And it's very much a, you know, a 180, a lot of it. I mean, we just did a poll, LA Times of, in LA County, just looking at um, the number of people who want to see more police and want more in reinvestment. Um, we have a mayoral, mayoral race 
happening right now. Um, Karen Bass, Congress, Karen Bass is one of our leading candidates who historically has been one of the more liberal members of Congress and, and in the state legislature before that. She was one of the, you know, the authors of the George Floyd and policing bill. She's been pushing that, but even she has talked about increasing the size of LAPD mm-hmm. um, and talking about, can, you know, adhering to the polls and adhering to where the public is. And so for me, when I think about what the task force is getting ready to, you know, drop this proposal in a few months, where are the politics going to be? They're going to be even more right than they are now is the way that I see it going. And so I worry that that window that we had that frankly allowed, mm. you know, then, you know, member of legislature Weber, now Secretary of State Shirley Weber, right. to pass this bill right. and to get this kind of applause for doing it, that moment is kind of not passed, but it's like it's a window that's shrinking. <clears throat> so I don't know where the legislature that's so far, that says they're so liberal, says they're so Democrat, where you know Governor Newsom is going to be on this stuff. I think it's going to come down to a lot of public pressure. And I don't know. I, the polls are showing way more of this kind of retrenching uh, of stuff that was more of a white supremacist mindset you know, it happened asked. in San Francisco yeah. where, um, you know, our mayor, uh, Mayor London Breed, instead of, mm-hmm. you know, in the tenderloin where um, disproportionately black men are dying of fentanyl overdoses and also um, who are on the streets, you know, the response or the plan is, you know, we need to have more police. You know, we need to occupy the area as if that's going to solve anything. Because it worked so well in the past. Yes, exactly. But you know that you're saying it's going more right um i really believe the critical you know the artificial critical race theory argument is going to come to california particularly if the former president runs you know that would be a staple of his stump um and it upended you know gubernatorial election in virginia um school boards throughout uh, the south um i believe it will descend on california nikki when we had lunch over the holidays, we talked about you know counter narratives to mm-hmm. conventional thought, mm-hmm. and you're writing a book <laughs> that's going to argue you know for the abolition of police. Mm-hmm. How do we break the dissonance created by the right wing outrage mach- machine to reach people? You know how you know what's the prebuttal to that argument mm-hmm. that's going that Eric was talking about, where it's hey let's move right, we need more police. That's the answer. I think the pre-buttal is the argument that we've been having um, for decades. I mean, so part of the work that I do and my colleagues do in, in black studies is to constantly produce a counter-narrative mm. to these ideologies and beliefs mm-hmm. that justify oppression, exploitation, violence, subjugation, mm-hmm. right, and on and on and on. Uh, and I, you know, what I appreciate about, appreciate about this moment is in part because of the the work that folks have done in in black studies and other folks, critical race scholars, doing this kind of work is that we do have a very large body of evidence uh, of the harm and an argument, right, to push back against and to to accurately diagnose what's happening in this moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is what we can do for people. That's the kind of work the and, and and the work of, of journalists and, and artists and, and activists do this work as well it's con- i mean there's never a moment to not be imagining the pre-buttal or the retrenchment mm-hmm. uh, and so it so and i think that that counter narrative and that work is there 
But I do think it's a danger that, that yes, folks are going to come to California. They're going to come to Berkeley. They yeah. come to my class now. Like yeah. 99% of the things I say, I, I can't say in some other state if I'm a K-12 K, K educator, right? And that's, that's an issue. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. And so we do have to be ready. I think we have to, to stay ready uh, for, that, for that to come and to uh, provide people with, you know, to, I don't want to use like violent language and say to, to arm people, right, in this battle, but in many ways it is a battle, right? Mm-hmm. And people do have to have an ability to diagnose what is not original in any stretch of the imagination. Right, right, right. This is not new. Like we knew that this retrenchment was going to come. Mm-hmm. We know that there's going to be some manufactured moral panic, right? None of it is, is original. And so to help people diagnose it, understand it, and act and connect to a, a, a history of people who have done that mm-hmm. right, over the, the long struggle is part of what we can do when we can anticipate uh, you know, in, in pushing back against what is likely to come, but what is already here as well. Exactly. You, know? it's, um, you mentioned that you know, there's all, all this information, but the do-your-research crowd actually doesn't want to read. And doesn't want to actually <laughs> doesn't actually want to educate itself. Um, Sarah, this is something I've always wanted to ask you: is that you know you can go just Google Bay Area Equity Atlas. You can go and find out so much data about the place we live. You can find, you know, we say racial disparities, we say inequities, but you can go and see in a granular detail um, what's happening here. Is it frustrating to do that research and, you know, present this data and, you know, people it needs to reach, you know, to understand to, you know, I'm thinking legislators to um, people who are skeptical of this Black Lives Matter movement. Is it frustrating that people aren't, inquisitive to learn more or to dive into that data that you've just presented it's for free right there (laughs) yeah um i mean i think i've found in our work that the data can actually be really a conversation starter Mm -hmm. so uh, we've worked across the country and in the bay area um, to bring people together around the data and they're not Oftentimes, there are people that are already in the equity movement, but not always. We, we were presenting the data to the Contra Costa County Board of Supervisors, mm, right? Mm-hmm. So it was a budget justice coalition that asked us to share data from the Bay Area Equity Atlas because they were getting curious about equity. So I've found that those tools, when we have the opportunity to share the data and to really look at, okay, what does it look like and what are the drivers, and we start to have these same conversations similar to the reparations conversation, what are the structural and systemic drivers Mm -hmm. of these disparities that we see, and then what could we do locally? Um, What are the action steps? So, yes, I want more people to go to the Bay Area Equity Atlas, and I think that it is a tool that others can use to start having those conversations. I know a lot of students use it, Mm -hmm. um, so it it can really be helpful in the community. More journalists should be using it. Uh, (laughs) One um, that point, I believe it was uh, around representation that we spoke about earlier this year um, and that I've been researching myself. Um, The Bay Area is 60% people of color. 
but our elected officials are 60% white. So when we ask ourselves, why hasn't anything changed? Well, I think representation matters, right? Yeah, it it definitely matters. It's not everything because you can have the demographics of electeds could look just like the demographics of the community, but they might not be um, voting for equity-focused policies, right? But it does matter in terms of having lived experience in the communities, especially marginalized uh, communities, excluded communities that haven't been connected, that have no trust Mm -hmm. in local government, you know, having representation in the halls of power does matter. It creates those connections. So it matters a lot and we have a long way to go. We're slowly, we've been tracking this data. We gather it every every year for the past four years and it is getting marginally better. Mm -hmm. It's like this slow crawl to getting a little bit better, but still so far. Still, still. Yeah. So, Speaking of representation, um, I feel there's assault, active assaults on voting rights and reproductive rights in this country. Um, there's really an assault on black history, well, which is really American history. Um, I'd like to take this moment to recognize a piece of California's black history. Shirley Weber, currently the Secretary of State, a black woman – authored the bill signed by Gavin Newsom, which established the task force, which is chaired by Camilla Moore, a black woman. President Joe Biden, I think it should be like in the next couple of days, said by the end of February he was going to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. And Leandra Kruger, who sits on California Supreme Court, a black woman, is on the short list. Of course, there were blatantly racist responses from white men, many of whom support the big lie, many of whom supported the former president, who was, I think, the most unqualified person for the job. They were attacking black women. I want to ask you, Erica, Nikki, Sarah, black women have been the backbone of so many movements in this country. But why is it that black women are so readily attacked, you know, saying they have not accomplished enough, saying that they haven't done enough? Why do you think that is? <laughs> I tackling this one first. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've given definitely given it some thought. I mean, you know. By no means am I the kind of public eye that, you know, Dr. Weber is a secretary of state, but, you know, as a columnist, I get my fair share of arrows sent my way um, that I've noticed are very different than my male colleagues and and even female colleagues of different races. Um, I don't know. I think in some ways, I think because black women have, as you said, been the backbone of so many different movements, I think black women just have a tendency to just tell you exactly what things are without mincing words. I mean, tact isn't always our strong suit. <laughs> um, that's actually one of the reasons I appreciate interviewing Dr. Weber. She always gives me a really good quote. Um, yes, indeed. <laughs> but, you know, I think that, you know, that, that habit of getting right to the point and not sugarcoating things and just being very direct, I don't think it sits well with people who are used to having their 
egos and everything coddled. Like the number of emails I get from a week from some white man telling me he's been oppressed is like skyrocketing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, and it's, it's by stuff that they, they don't understand the definition of oppression. And that, you know, I think that as our society becomes more, is in theory more equal, um, and these issues that we've been talking about become more relevant and more and clearer and more people understand the history and the the reality, you know, and, and black women just don't shut up. I think people just don't like people who just don't shut up and tell the truth. Mm. And black women have the habit of don't, not saying. <laughs> they won't shut up. So that's my theory anyway. What do you think, uh, Nikki? I agree with uh, all of that. Uh, and, um, you know, I think fundamentally a black woman in that position, a black woman on the Supreme Court, a black woman president, is a threat to the society that they imagine belongs to them, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that they are entitled mm-hmm. to, yep. right? And so if we go from Du Bois to the Combahee River Collective, thinking of the role of queer black women in, in fighting against systemic uh, racism and police violence, right? We know if, if, if black women can be free, then we're all free. But some people don't want all of us to be free, right. didn't want it then, and don't want it now. Mm-hmm. Right? And and that is, I think, part of the reaction, the kind of deep psychic reaction mm-hmm. that you are getting. And, and that, yes, we know. We've, we experienced it on the street, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, and, and so it is part of the, the interactional experience, but also part of the institutional mm-hmm. experience in that, in that kind of psychic violence that is, they imagine being done to them by a, a, having a black woman uh, in that place. So, there, I mean, there's a lot to, to say about that. Um, and at the same time, if we can imagine that this happens, that a black woman is on the Supreme Court and, like, you know, in parens, not all black women are the same, <laughs> right? Uh, and so we got to do some, like, serious vetting when it comes to the, the black woman who's... Uh, but to have a black woman on the Supreme Court mm-hmm. when we understand that there was a time in our country's history where black women had no rights before any court, right? Mm-hmm right, reproductive or otherwise, right, that is of is symbolic significance. And I think because of that history, that is why it's seen as such a threat. Mm-hmm. And Sarah, you know, we've talked about, um, you know, basically white allyship mm. and, you know, being able to, you know, speak, you know, to the power and, you know, not running from when when you know when it becomes difficult when liberalism becomes difficult um talk about that allyship and needing that um to support black women but also to support um this idea that hey we as a society society need to do something or this is going to continue it's going to continue these problems are going to continue yeah i mean i guess you know personally i come to it from a social justice racial justice perspective right like that's my point of view and i care about repair and um but you know it really is everyone's issue right right so what i mean one we need to win the transformative policies that we need, we need white people to vote for them. (laughs) We need need white people to care. We need brown people to care. I mean, so we need to build a bigger coalition. Um, And I think it really is about building a multiracial democracy. It is our project in America. Mm -hmm. Racism costs 
all of us, right? Systemic racism and inequities are this huge burden and cost that we feel in so many different ways. And if we can work to solve those, I do think that everyone will benefit. You know, we have a framing that we use at PolicyLink, equity is the superior growth model. And Mm. we talk about how um, if you focus on addressing those systemic inequities, remedying them, then like there are going to be cascading benefits um, for everyone. And we've actually even calculated it in terms of in the United States, if you didn't have inequity, racial inequities in income, it would be two trillion more in GDP. The economy would grow if you didn't have those barriers, those exclusions, right? So that would mean more small businesses, more thriving communities. So um, there's a democratic case, a democracy case for it. There's an economic case Mm -hmm. in addition to the moral case. And I think talking about that more could bring in more people into the conversation because we do need white folks to also be for reparations, right? Yeah, I mean, we need the legislature, which is majority yeah. white, to in a majority people of color state. So we need we need the votes. Um, or we could change the legislature. We should. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, but we need money to do that. And That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, okay. I am ready for some questions. Are y'all ready for sure. some questions? Do it. Yes, let's um, let's do a Q and A right now, and let's talk to the people, which is what it's all about. Oh, then there was light. Oh, you have the mic. I mean, I'm, I can call on people. I'm good with that. <laughs> Hi, thanks for sharing space tonight. Um, So one thing that I've been seeing in the task force meetings is that there's this idea that the longer we wait to pay out reparations, the bigger the bill gets. Mm. And I'm just wondering what what your all's thoughts on that is. Mm. (laughs) Well, factually, that's true. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, and it's already in the billions and trillions. Uh, And so, you know, I think that they're are a number of reasons not to wait. Um, I think that there are descendants now who do know um, their histories and, and linkages and um, are deserving of compensation. I also think that they're, you know, and I was thinking as Sarah was talking about the, the rent issue. So we're talking about reparations in the context of ongoing exploitation and state violence. Mm-hmm. And if you can continue to do that and never be held account, then you'll continue to do that. So symbolically, one of the things that the reparations task force can do in a system of reparations can encourage, and again, like we're in a, a kind of a global capitalist context, right? But can encourage institutions to, change, to, to act differently, to change their behavior. And it's going to need a, like a lot of force and pressure to do that. Right? But what does reparations mean in a context of this ongoing exploitation? So take housing, for example, when if things are looking really bad, right? Once, the, the, you know, once we get to this moment where rents are due, we know exactly who that's going to impact the most. And we also know that there are real estate investment trusts and corporations that are buying up houses uh, in East Oakland and right, in, in other parts of the Bay Area. What if those, those, those places are land trusts? 
and some of that exists in the Bay Area as well. And that land, right, and again, we still have the issues around land, but that land is then, then passed on, right, to those people who right now are at risk of economic catastrophe, right? So, so there is, I think, an urgency to it um, for a number of, of different reasons. Um, and just, yeah, factually, it, the bill is going to con- continue to get higher, um, yet it's already astro- astronomical. Right? Yeah, I think uh, um, Sandy Darity, and, um, mm-hmm. he's put it at between 12 and $14 trillion mm-hmm. is the bill. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I'm thinking about money when um, if you get evicted, like it's – it's so hard to get another apartment. It's devastating. And then if you if you can't pay your rent, you get evicted. Then how are you going to have the first month's deposit, the la- you know first and last month's deposit, the money to move your stuff to another place? I mean, and then there's just the time to search for a place, and you're probably working. I mean, it is it's so stressful. I can I can't imagine how how stressful that is. Yeah, I mean, there's also like you know the perverse incentive too. I mean. I agree. The longer you wait, the bigger the bill gets. But the other reality is, is that, you know, black folks are moving out of California, mm. you know, because they can't afford to live here. So there also is the perverse incentive that the longer you wait, the fewer people you have to potentially pay for. Mm. So, I mean, you know, politically speaking, and that's just the, the cynical journalist in me that <laughs> the flip side. But I mean, I don't know. I think that, yes, the moral right thing to do would be to pay up now and to, to, to move this. But, you know, I I think there's different ways of looking at this in the in the, the shrewd political sense of the word, and mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily put anything past mm-hmm. you know, some of our lawmakers to go that route either. So, and I, you know, I do want to bring in the role of universities uh, as well, uh, and I think that one of the things that we've seen happen across the country, country is that universities have taken a really active role in examining their own history and relationship to slavery, and some places are developing, you know, programs and, and, and reparations for that in really kind of specific and detailed ways. Um, but again, if we think about the, the present harm, we could think about universities um, developing uh, programs for black students. Now, very difficult, uh, you know, you're <laughs> covering politics, very difficult to get that kind of thing, right, support for that kind of thing. Um, but to think about not only residents in California right now, but people who might come to California who are black uh, and because of their connection to that history are owed something, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And, and our state institutions owe them, owe them something, right? Yeah. So it's an opportunity for growth for California in, in a lot of ways. Um, so mm-hmm. it's in that model, mm-hmm. sure. Got another question. An audience. Um, I have a, a statement um, and a question. Um, I am a single black mother who put, single-handedly put my daughter through college and in the process losing my home because I took out a mortgage to put her through because I made too much to get mm-hmm. assistance to mm-hmm. pay for her to go to college. So I'm not this deadbeat black person that could not pay her way. I needed a little help, mm-hmm. but... And those the predatory lending, mm-hmm. I lost everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I believe in the talks of reparations, there needs to be more repair. Mm-hmm. Sarah was saying, mm-hmm. and repair to me is something like land mm-hmm. opportunities, mm-hmm. not just a check mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. possibly. Um, 
some won't use it to better themselves or their mm-hmm. their children. Mm-hmm. Um, where in the way of land, uh, education, uh, grants, and things of that mm-hmm. nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the question is, I always say when they have these commissions or these task force, they never ask people who are impacted and affected by whatever the the issue is what their thoughts are. Um, And I would like to see that because whatever it is they're talking about, I guarantee you, they don't know how to really help people Mm -hmm. that that are actually being impacted, and I'm one of them. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've worked for the federal government for 30 years. Mm -hmm. I experienced racism um, in ways that, you know, people treat you differently or feel that, you know, this opportunity should go to this person first because they're less vocal, whatever. I'm, I was never a disrespectful person. I was a union person, union rep. Mm-hmm. But you get treated differently. Mm-hmm. You, you get punished more severely mm-hmm. than somebody who is of another skin color. Mm-hmm. So, so I internalized that, and over time it did break me down mm-hmm. to to the point where you know, I have high anxieties and things like that. But people don't understand that. Mm. They don't have that experience. Okay? And I was a professional worker, wasn't uh, a, a laborer or anything like that. I worked with people. I, I did the job of people who had JDs, you know, mm. attorney, you know, uh, law degrees and stuff like that. So I, I just, in, in saying all of this, Repair is what's needed, and that's a better solution than just saying across the board, give everybody a check. I would like to see more opportunities created mm-hmm. um, for housing, home ownership. That's what the help should be. Mm-hmm. So, so, but the question is, is are they going to ask people who are directly impacted um, what repair should look like? Yes, they are, and um, I, I bet they'd like to hear your story, too. Yeah. Um, the task force is modeling, um, uh, I call it a tour, um, around across the state to hear from black people, to, to um, get their stories so it becomes like they can archive their stories and becomes part of the narrative of, uh, you know, I've always been of the opinion that, you know, you, if you go to communities, ask people what mm-hmm. they need, yeah. they will tell you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what the task force is doing, much like what um, uh, a commission did uh, for Japanese reparations, where they went to cities, including San Francisco, um, and uh, captured testimony from people who were imprisoned um, by by this country. But... Um, how important do you think the stories are to, to capture those? Yeah, I just want to acknowledge you and, and thank you for sharing your story and to tell you that um, when we think about the impact of the Great Recession, and, and, and Sarah may have you know, more you know, of the data to, to share with you on this, <laughs> yes, but the impact on, on the, great, uh, the Great Recession and the predatory housing loan right, catastrophe conspiracy mm. fell very hard mm. on the backs of black women. If you look in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. I think you see that. And you see exactly, I'm sure that you were the woman in your family that everyone came to, right, when they needed something, 
right? You were the one who had a good job, right, with the federal government, and you were a target by, by predatory loans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? right. In this moment. So what is what is the repair for that? And it, that was the case because you're black. Thanks. Whether or not you uh, you know your exact linkage to slavery, right? And you may, but I'm just saying whether or not because you are black in this moment what it means to be black in the settings in which you were in, right? That made you a target. And so there has to be some acknowledgement of that. And exactly what you're laying out are possible solutions. So maybe it's a trust. Maybe it's an educational trust. Maybe it's a housing trust. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and so that you can imagine other kinds of, of ways to access um, the, what you need to build wealth, but also to repair, repair the harm that was done to you. And that is where you can, you can hold you know, we, we, the uh, institutions accountable yes. right, for repairing that harm. Corporations. Corporations. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's you and it's so many black women yeah. who were who were striving, right? Who were doing the thing for their families who became the targets. And the way you're the other part of what you're saying is the weathering effect, right? And so the health consequences mm-hmm. right of moving through the, the your career as a black woman in this setting, right? Uh, and the treatment that you received that it does have a health consequence, both on our mental health and our physical health. And we see that in health disparities. And then who's, who's accountable for that, mm-hmm. right? Because then you go to the doctor, you go to the hospital, right, and all these beliefs about black people are informing how you're being treated there too. Yes, yes. Right? So every institution has a price to pay, yeah. right? Uh, and, and, and the stories, you know, as, a, as an ethnographer, I think the stories are, are central to that. Yes, indeed. And I will add that, you know, the task force is taking public comment if it matters before each meeting. Like there's an hour, I think, before before they actually talk. And you can also submit a comment online as well. So, I mean, it, it gets a lot. I mean, I do think it actually is informing what they're doing, if it, it helps at all. And I would encourage you to definitely share your story as much as possible. And, I, and to Otis's point, I do, I do know that they are traveling the state. So I do get the sense I do actually care <laughs> what people actually think. Um, so if, that, if that's at all helpful to you. But thank you for sharing your story. And I would say the expectation that they weren't reaching out is the right one to have, given the behavior of most political bodies, right? So, I mean, it's a huge thing. We have a report coming out about the task forces that were set up. I mean, it's not about reparations, but the task forces Mm -hmm. that were set up right um, at the beginning of COVID, the pandemic task forces, and how it's all business representatives, like extremely few labor community representatives um, at all. So that is the normal way of operating. So it's the correct assumption, and sounds like this task force is doing better. But that's always um, a really important demand to be making that impacted people are at the table because mm-hmm. it's not you cannot assume that will happen. Exactly. For sure. So um, California's history is is under a microscope right now um, as the first statewide task force in the nation to study reparations for Black people combs through this state's unpleasant beginning and ramifications that we see today. Chattel slavery, the enslavement and ownership of people and their descendants is a unique terror in this country's history. KQED's coverage of reparations and the Reparations Task Force is an invitation to think about 
our shared history. Um, I want you to ask yourself, instead of appreciating and approaching race and equity as complex issues, who benefits when we pretend that racism doesn't exist? Find us at kqed.org slash reparations. And um, let's hear it for our panelists tonight. I think that's it. That's our cue. I want that jacket, for real. <laughs> Velvet. Thank you all. Um, we'll see you. Coming up on American Black Journal, reparations for African Americans is a topic we have been talking about for decades. My special panel of guests will give their perspectives on what is owed to the black descendants of enslaved people and the survivors of discrimination. Plus, we'll talk about what to expect from Detroit's task force on reparations that voters approved in the last election. It's an important topic. Stay right there. American Black Journal starts now. From Delta faucets to bare paint, Masco Corporation is proud to deliver products that enhance the way consumers all over the world experience and enjoy their living spaces. Masco, serving Michigan communities since 1929. Support also provided by the Cynthia Etzel Ford Fund for Journalism at Detroit Public TV. The DTE Foundation proudly supports 50 years of American Black Journal in covering African American history, culture, and politics. The DTE Foundation and American Black Journal partners in presenting African American perspectives about our communities and in our world. Also brought to you by AAA, Nissan Foundation, and viewers like you. Thank you. To American Black Journal. I'm Stephen Henderson. Reparations, what is owed to black Americans? That's the question we recently tackled on a virtual town hall hosted by American Black Journal and Bridge Detroit. It was an emotional discussion that covered reparations for discriminatory housing and economic practices in Detroit and as a way to close the wealth gap between whites and blacks. We also talked about what form reparations should take and who should receive them. Today, we're bringing you a portion of that town hall that features civil rights activist, Reverend Dr. Joanne Watson, Lauren Hood, who's chair of the Detroit Planning Commission, Heath Williams, who's chair of the Michigan Democratic Party's Black Caucus, and Andre Perry, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. So based on your research, and of course on your opinion, uh, tell us, why do African-Americans need reparations. And if we don't do that, what is the, the, the likelihood that we solve the inequality that we all live with? Well, our inability to pay the unpaid debt is still with us, that the racial wealth divide where we see white families median wealth eight times that of black families, 
is a direct result of the systemic uh, um, exclusion of assets or uh, of subsidies that we are owed. Um, and this continues to this day. Um, in addition, the, the sort of framework, of you will, of denying um, African Americans uh, public subsidies that they that other populations enjoy was taken up in in, in different ways in um, more contemporary contexts. Um, so you have housing discrimination, you have criminal justice um, bias, um, you have uh, business discrimination. Um, all of these follow a certain path of uh, of, of that 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 uh, black people were denied. Um, um, what they are due. And, and so um, there's a real cost um, that black people still have to pay, a real penalty. You know, my research shows that homes in black neighborhoods um, um, compared to areas where there are few black people in them are underpriced by 23%, about 48000 per home. Cumulatively, that's about $156 billion in lost equity in black neighborhoods and 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 this is particularly true in in detroit where one where so many black people used to own homes but could not hold on to them because of the 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 housing crisis and, and let me just bring this back to wealth when you have less wealth it's harder to withstand the economic shocks that inevitably occur the those who had wealth could survive the housing crisis better. Those who had wealth could survive the pandemic, can, um, can um, withstand uh, uh, environmental hurdles. And so that lack of wealth um, really predicts for lower outcomes um, in every other area. So, you know, we, we, this is an issue that has not gone away. People say, oh, I didn't own any slaves. Well, um, the impact of slavery, the impact of Jim Crow racism, the impact of housing discrimination is still with us. And by the way, we're not asking uh, uh, individuals to pay for pay reparations. We're asking the federal government, state governments, local municipalities to pay, and also institutions because um, we can't let them off the hook. So colleges and universities, universities churches. Um, and so I'm encouraged by what's happening all across the country with these local efforts, but um, we, um, hopefully they will move up to the national level. Yeah. So, so I want to talk about the practical end of this with you uh, as well, um, the form of reparations. So you just threw out a number, uh, $156 billion, that gap between uh, what uh, white families in America have been able to, to earn through property ownership and what, what African-Americans have been able to do. That's a, I mean, it's a huge number, um, but we throw huge numbers all the time yeah. <laughs> out with, with, with federal spending. But, but what is the way, what is the way to make up that gap? Is it through some sort of payment or is, is there a more creative uh, spectrum of things that we ought to be thinking about to, to make that number go away? Well, remember, reparations is, is mostly about the claims people can have around um, systemic oppression. So there are different types of claims made. So when you're talking about slavery and unpaid labor, you, you're talking about a check. When you're talking about housing discrimination, you're talking about down payment assistance and, and the like. Um, and, and, you know, so it really depends on the claim. You know, my colleague Rashawn Ray and I put 
of a report not that long ago um, where we outline a, a series of steps, including cash payments, um, but also including scholarships um, uh, to make college free. Uh, we also include um, a, a business grants um, because we know that businesses were denied opportunities. Uh, um, uh, we also in- include other subsidies. So I, I think it's a, a range of approaches at, coming from multiple levels. Again, the you know when you're talking about housing discrimination, for instance, there was housing discrimination on the part of federal, state, and local uh, and ordinances. So uh, entities. So all of those institutions, all of those um, levels of government have some responsibility to pay. So it's going to look different. And that 156 billion, it was only in uh, the case of housing devaluation. And, and I just want to put this in perspective. In just that one area, 156 billion would have financed um, more than four million black-owned businesses based upon the average amount black people use to start their firms. It would have paid for eight million four-year degrees based upon the average amount of a four-year public education. It would have replace the pipes in Flint, Michigan, 3,000 times over, covered nearly all of Hurricane Katrina damage, and it's double the, the annual economic burden of the opioid crisis. This is a big number. So when you're talking about reparations, which falls in anywhere in the area of uh, $3 to $17 billion, uh, trillion dollars, um, based upon the model you use, um, you could see a dramatic shift in how um, uh, black people live. And, and again, I, I just want to emphasize this. Um, um, and I say this like it keeps my teeth white, that there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve. That, that when, when people talk about what's wrong with, with uh, uh, black communities, they blame black people. Tic Tac Hanh, the, the Vietnamese philosopher um, who recently died, once said that if you are growing ahead of lettuce, and it's not growing, you don't blame the lettuce. You look to see if it's getting sunlight. You look to see if it's get the soils enriched, if it's getting rainwater. You don't blame the lettuce. But when it comes to black communities, we're constantly blaming the lettuce and not looking at the policies that, it, that still inflict harm and penalty on us. So for me, reparations is, is about healing, is a moral debt, as was mentioned. It's a fiscal one. And, and, and this one more point. Um, that this idea that we can't handle a check is ridiculous. You know, um, just this past um, pandemic, you actually saw two two things happen. When millennials um, uh, had their student loans frozen, guess what happened? We saw a small bump in um, home ownership. Um, and and the the relief packages for um, um, had actually caused an uptick in black businesses, particularly micro-businesses. And so black people used the, their uh, stimulus checks to start new businesses. Why wouldn't they start more businesses with more money? I, I mean, the evidence is pretty clear that when given an opportunity, we take it. Uh, Reverend Watson, it's always good to see you, but it's especially good to see you today uh, for this conversation. Thank you so much, and thank you for inviting me on this very important topic. I've been involved on the reparations issue since my youth. 
Uh, I was absolutely mentored by some of the greatest uh, reparations freedom fighters, uh, Mario Bedelli, then known as Richard Henry, uh, Reverend Milton Henry Gaidio Bedelli. Reparations Ray Jenkins got his title from me uh, when he would call into my radio show talking about reparations every day. Uh, Many of our own people don't know that uh, the Confederates who lost the Civil War Uh, They receive reparations. Many, many populations have received reparations, uh, but not Africans who helped build this country. And the whole country benefited from the unpaid labor of African people who were kidnapped. And I I prefer to say people were enslaved and not say slaves. And I refer to those who thought they owned slaves. They were not masters. They were enslavers. America will never be fully healed from from this original sin of enslavement and until reparations is, that is rightfully due is afforded to the Africans who helped build this country. It's not a handout. It's a dead old. It's not a handout. It's a dead old. And that, that has been recognized as a recognized legal principle that has been applied to every other group of people that has been wronged except of African descent. Let's talk about what Detroiters approved last year and what the status is of this task force. What will we see in the coming months? Well, Stephen, it's a challenge. Um, (laughs) It always is. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll talk a little bit about this group of us that meets. So there's myself, Cousin Keith over here, um, Council President Sheffield and her people, you know, uh, we had Jamon Jordan in the conversation earlier for the historical lens. There's some other grassroots activists that have been coming to the conversation. So we're kind of a de facto steering committee. And like you said, have been engaged since November. So we as a group are trying to make the most um, authentic and inclusive process possible. But there's always a tension with getting something done and being inclusive. Because the longer it takes to do something, the more you can be, but then we're also um, contending with, you know, this pressure from folks to, like, see something happening. Um, it's always my contention, like, the, the subject of reparations, like, this is sacred work. We're overturning, you know, generations of trauma here. Like, this is something that's going to take a lot of time to get it right, but folks are like, where's my check? So there's this tension of, of those two things, and I think what What our group is trying to consider is what can we do now? You know, we need some direct service because there are people struggling now, but also create a long enough runway where we can get this right. Because this this is sacred work. There's a lot tied up in here. It's not just like a wealth gap. It's like a hope gap, a worthiness gap, a self-respect gap. There's a lot tied into what reparations can and should do. Uh, Keith, uh, the Black Caucus commissioned a poll that showed majority of Detroiters support reparations for past discriminatory housing policies and practices here in the city. Uh, talk about those feelings and what you feel those reparations could look like. All of us remember, I think, uh, the, the, the struggle that African Americans had to own homes in, in many places here in Detroit. Uh, I think a lot of people know about the struggles that we have right now keeping homes in the city of Detroit. Um, Tell us about what Detroiters think about what we should do about all that. You know, 
when we got involved in this, uh, I, I got involved because of Robert Ruth Simmons. I was looking at Channel 7 one night, and she was on, and she was talking about this little town in Everstill, Illinois. I was so impressed. After the show, my wife was saying, I said, I'm getting ready to call this young lady. So I inboxed her, and she called me back. And so I was inspired by she took a little city of 75,000 folks, 80% African-American, and created this new economic engine. And so I said, if she can do it here, then why can't we do it in Detroit? And then so I got involved. Then to, to, to delve off into this, you've got to know the history of Detroit. Like you said in your opening, from slavery, then 19, uh, 1900, there were 6,000 blacks. Then you go to 1931, that's when the influx of blacks came from the South and then to come to work for a Fort Motor Company. Then they had to have a place to stay, and they moved us over there, black, black bottom and things like that. And so I got to sin. So I, started, I got to think about how much wealth was stolen from us, okay? And so if you look at it, the black bottom and then this 375 movement, then 1941 on Burwood Street, how they used federal dollars under the auspices of urban development as well as they did black bottom, we couldn't have, we didn't have a place to stay. And they did it with ordinances, restricted covenances, and, um, and, and using the words slums so they can use it as uh, urban development money. And then I got more deep, deep into it that I realized up until 1971, black folks could not live in Rosedale Park because of restrictive covenances. And so I look at it like this. I don't look at it as a cash handout. I look at it as a re redevelopment of the city and African-Americans leading the charge on it, such as housing. Housing is where all the wealth was lost. And so, uh, like Lauren said, this is sacred stuff. I cried. I cried when I got involved in this. And when we did that poll, I knew when we did that ballot and this, you know, this is the first in the, in the, in, of this kind in the country. I just came from December 12th. I was at a reparations convention sponsored by Robert Ruth Simmons and never still Illinois. It was 40 cities. Detroit is the true chocolate city. San Francisco, LA, they got black folks, but nothing like Detroit. And so I said, if Detroit can be the lead dog in this initiative, if we just come together, like Lauren said, we're going through some family issues right now, and we're going to get through it, you know, when you get us all together as a family, but it's all about love. But now our language, language says the city council got to set the task force up to make recommendations on economic development and housing. Yeah. Yeah. So, Lauren, uh, we've got a question from Kelly on uh, on Facebook, and I want to put it to you. She says, why do you think there's so much resistance to reparation? I think that's an interesting question to talk about the things that we are uncomfortable talking about, right? Uh, that that it when depends race... on, Yeah, which, which group are we talking resistance from? I think black folks resist because we have a lot of pride for what we've been able to accomplish. And again, like Mama Watson said, and we all say it's not a, it's not a handout, it's, you know, for, for work served. Mm -hmm. So there, there's a lot of pride on the part of black folks. I think that other groups, I would just say anti-black racism. Like in your opening segment, you talked about the other ethnic groups that, you know, were compensated for their, their pain and trauma and time served. And I think if you, you know, apples to apples, 
harm done compensation? What's the, what's the differing factor in those groups and us other than, you know, our, our color? I really think it's specific anti-black racism that people don't, don't want us to have anything. No, I, I think there's also, uh, there's a dimension of this that differs from other, some of these other groups, right? After the Holocaust took place uh, during World War II, uh, uh, the Germans were sorry for what they did, and they were made to be sorry by an international community. Uh, but there, there was there was a feeling that they did owe something uh, to the Jews who were who were victims. Uh, after uh, Japanese were interred here in um, in um, in this country during the during the war, eventually there was uh, an apologetic. Um, imperative to try to make that better. I, I, I don't think that has happened quite yet uh, with African Americans. It certainly didn't happen after the Civil War. Uh, no. There was a backlash that 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 was angry that African Americans were free and wanted to compete for all the resources that everybody else did. You move up through Jim Crow, uh, the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, Today, we're fighting about uh, the language that the President of the United States is using to describe his next Supreme Court nominee, who would be the first African-American woman uh, to sit on that court. I think that's part of what is missing. There, uh, there is not uh, an imperative to be sorry. That's correct. But what is at the root of that? <laughs> oh, right. yes. You know, why, why, why is that? I think also... There, there needs to be some education around what our contributions were. Like even for black folks, um, everything I know about black history, I learned starting at the age of maybe 35, you know, through my own um, research. So what does it look like when we have a comprehensive understanding of what our contributions actually were? So, you know, we were doing a reparations program at the Charles H. Wright, and one of the participants had his grandfather show up, who was an actual sharecropper. So he walked us through his day as a sharecropper. After his testimony, we all understood why we were worthy of this compensation. But everybody doesn't have access to stories like that. But what if everybody did? I just think that the money should go into housing so people can have, lay their head and build some wealth. And then we need an economic engine you know, with all this new creativity out here, these kids are entrepreneurs. They should be able to. Uh, they should be able to be, go out there and and produce a product and and sell their product to make money off of it. Uh, you know, this is not about a handout. Uh, this is about a hand up, and we're not asking for somebody to do something for us. And then you got some African Americans going through that psychological problem. They don't want no. They don't want to be under uh, the auspice of thinking that somebody gave them something. But guess up. Uh, guess what? It would take us 233 years to catch up with white America and their wealth. And so somehow we got to close this gap. And why not in Detroit? Why not in Washington D.C., where we know? I grew up in Detroit. I was born and raised on, in, in Black Bottom. I was born in Women's Hospital. The street east, uh, uh, East Fourth Street, is still there. It's old King's football. It's King's football field where we live. And so I came from that. We moved from there to Northwest Detroit in 1957. So I get it. But you know, currently we got this this tax problem on the 600,000 of the the, the, the assessment part of it. 
and we need to do something about that. So it's a it's like a smorgasbord of things, but I think housing and, and economic development should drive this agenda. A lot of folks had their hand in causing the pain and the harm in African Americans. All I want to see is black folks get repaid and we get our dignity back and we can have a, a brighter future for all our kids. I'm I'm 66 now, and I went to the whole shot of city Detroit. I just want to see a vision of, of hope, and like and my acronym for hope is this: helping helping our people elevate. I want to see people elevate to a new standard of living, and where they can prosper and they can enjoy the American dream. And you can see this entire hour-long town hall on reparations on the American Black Journal Facebook page. That's going to do it for us this week. Thanks for watching. You can find out more about our guests at AmericanBlackJournal.org. And you can always connect with us on Facebook and on Twitter. Take care, and we'll see you next time. From Delta faucets to bare paint, Masco Corporation is proud to deliver products that enhance the way consumers all over the world experience and enjoy their living spaces. Masco, serving Michigan communities since 1929. Support also provided by the Cynthia Etzel Ford Fund for Journalism at Detroit Public TV. The DTE Foundation proudly supports 50 years of American Black Journal in covering African American history, culture, and politics. The DTE Foundation and American Black Journal partners in presenting African American perspectives about our communities and in our world. Also brought to you by AAA, Nissan Foundation, and viewers like you. Thank you.